0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist, with me, Josh Hamilton. Dr. Ulrika Veaton of Queen's University Belfast was my guest on today's show. There has been quite a lot of discussion in certain circles over the past few years about the idea of intersectionality. There's been a lot of heavy critiques of the theory and I was keen to find someone with whom I could discuss what exactly intersectionality is and to see what the explanations or responses are to some of the critiques that have sprung up as it has become more widely discussed. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list and don't forget my book Brexit the Establishment Civil War is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. So, here's Dr. Ulrike Beaton. Lovely. Right. So, Dr. Beaton, Ulrike, um, it's it's a pleasure to have you on my show.
1: Likewise. Pleasure that you invited me.
0: So, um, yeah, why don't you just start by uh, outlining what exactly is um, intersectionality?
1: Uh, I guess the problem is already if you say exactly. Um, Okay. (laughs) My my take would be to, let's say, first start talking about the concept and why it is a concept, intersectionality, uh, and the feminist concept or contribution also to theory, but also applied studies. Intersectionality was coined by the black legal scholar, West-American scholar Kimberle Crenshaw in the 90s already. And then at some point it moved to Europe, it moved to other places, and became a very central concept. Um, that said, already in the 80s or end 80s, early 90s in London, scholars like Nira Yuval-Davis or Fluentius, migrants to the UK, talked about social complexity. They didn't come up with the term cons- uh, intersectionality. But they were also concerned to understand how to capture the complexities and also contradictions sometimes within categories. And if I say social categories, I mean, for example, class, gender, sex, sexuality, ethnicity, and so forth. Because beforehand, in at least in critical uh, discussions, it was, you know, you were belonging to a class, you were belonging to a sex, you were belonging to a particular religious group, for example, but the contradictions, if you, let's say, were a member of a group, but also belonging to another social category, to illustrate this, you can be male, but you can perhaps belong to a minority religious group. Some categories are just invisible, so people don't know whether you belong to a working class or middle class and so forth. Um, And that's where the problem started. And that's also why Crenshaw, I guess, was so interested to bring this up. She was working with victims of domestic violence. And because, as I said, she was a lawyer, so she was interested in, you know, what can criminal law do and litigations. And what she found was either then they were talking about racism, but rather thinking of black men, or they were thinking of sexism, and then they were thinking about white women. And what she found was, yeah, of course, but black women are in a unique and very different position. They might have different needs. And that's where the discussion actually started to think, and that's not only a very abstract thing, but that could be also in the everyday life. If you think of social work, for example, what are the needs of a specific group? How can state policy or social policy, for example, respond to the needs of a particular group? And the group is not only defined by gender or ethnicity or religion or class, but they might be defined by different layers. That's why the intersection is so crucial. Different dimensions within a category meet and. If you, for example, if you Google this, you would see some illustrations, and they love this illustration where you have these different cars, you know, the yeah, crossing, the one, yeah. the crossing, and at the crossing there's a crash, um, and that's the let's say the idea to illustrate what happens if you have this quite unique situation where different angles or different dimensions meet, and. Um, and I can understand that this is, let's say, in in the everyday life, sometimes difficult to comprehend because still discussions rather focus on notions of sex, gender, for example, or they focus on class. And that's where we come from. I mean, if you go, let's say, go back to the 70s um, with Marxist, positions in mind, then they would say, okay, the main contradiction is about class. And then feminism basically evolved. And then they were saying, no, no, that's, that's bullshit. It's about the differences between men and women. So it's about sexism, you know, and these kind of discussions moved further. And at some point, particularly the black feminist movement contributed and pinpointed contributed to this discussion and saying, no, it's much more complex. You know, that's where complexity comes in. We are not happy, for example, um, we are affected by racism. Of course, we are also affected by sexism, for example, and classism. But our fight might be different. For example, the whole Black Lives Matter Movement at the minute, you see these young women and young men, young boys, and of course they cooperate because they're fighting white supremacy. And this wouldn't mm-hmm. be, let's say, going back to the seventies. That would be sort of, um, in terms from the feminism at that time, that wouldn't have been that kind of expression on the streets. And then you can see how intersectionality, for example, matters even on the ground.
0: Mm. okay right so just just so i can clarify that i've got this all all right before i start asking some questions so uh, essentially the 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 evolution of of this this theory started with people saying okay first we're defined by our class struggle and then um later came the feminists and they said okay we're defined by uh, the differences between men and women and the struggle that we have there to be seen maybe as equals um then as as um, sort of time went on, then people went, no, we have to look at the racial aspect of it. And then sort of it's it's um, moved on and on to a point where perhaps there's, there's 10, 15, 20 different, um, I don't know how you would see them, maybe <laughs> vectors yeah. of conflict yeah. or yeah. Um, yeah. something along those lines where you'd say, okay, so we're all defined by the different Um, groups that we belong to and each different group has their own struggle to deal with. And the point, uh, now get me wrong, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, of, of intersectionality is to say we need to find the points where all of our oppression is sort of intersecting. And that's where the, the the movement as such would would come together, and they say, okay, this is this is how we define that we are all like uh, us as different groups are oppressed in this way, this way, this way, and this is how we can come together to fight that oppression. Would that be would that be a fair assessment?
1: Um, I would say the the I would be cautious with the conclusion you just suggested, and beforehand, everything what you said were kind of capturing, right? What I said like that's kind of evolution of fights and categories Um, the crucial thing again is that within the discussions and debates but that also makes sense in the everyday life you would differentiate between identities for example social identities and structure and in terms of thinking about social identities as you just started saying yeah we all have sort of intersectional identities in the end okay Mm -hmm. So we—I don't know your different layers of intersectionality—but it, it made me smile when you were saying like up to twenty, 20 categories. Mm. <laughs> and in fact, I know publications and conferences where this was really an issue debated. Um, but the—but again, going back to Kimberlé Crenshaw, um, where it started or from Black feminism. They also had this kind of social structure in mind. So it's also about a form of hierarchy that it exists. Okay. So we can't uh, make it that banal saying like we all have intersectional identities. We do, of course, but some intersecting identities are more related to social structure of oppression. So they might be more relevant. And of course, this depends on the places. And if I say place or location, then I mean this might be different in Northern Ireland as it is different in Ireland. It is different in, let's say, some of the continental European countries. It's definitely different in the U.S. Okay. Yeah. So the intersectional categories that might be relevant here, and I'm just referring To a colleague from Ulster University. I don't know whether you came across her name. It's Eilish Rooney.
0: Uh, I'm not familiar with it, but I'm I'm sure. Yeah, because
1: when I moved to um, Northern Ireland or took up my fellowship at Queen's University Belfast, she was the one already established or working at Ulster University who was using intersectionality to understand. How the situation of working class Catholic and working class Protestant women in Belfast differ or similar are similar. And that was very interesting because in other places, that's why I said like, okay, the United States race or blackness is a very prominent, very important category. That's where the oppression, that's where the violence is happening. But in other places, it might be a different form of intersectional structure that is impacting also how how certain kinds of intersectional identities are politicized, if you know what I mean. And that, mm. that depends really on different places and not only in different, let's say, societies or countries, but also perhaps at different times it would have made a difference. Let's go back to mm. South Africa, for example, you know the, the struggle at that time is a different, and was a different time as we perhaps have this now in
0: some places. So. Okay. Yeah. So one of one of the one of the biggest critiques that I, I've come across of, of this this ideology is that it's very focused on on people as a member of a group, whether mm-hmm. that's um, women or a specific race or a class or or a sexuality. Um, and the the general critique is that we shouldn't be defining people by the by the group that they belong to. That that we should, you know, be be focusing on the individual. And I guess one of the one of the arguments that I've seen in favor of this, and that many people have made, is that that's what has made um, the I don't I don't want to say West because it's not a great way of putting it, but the developed what that's what has defined the success of the developed world. Um, I'm currently reading the book, uh, Why Nations Fail. And mm-hmm. it's, they're very sort of supportive of the idea that the, the, it, the our focus on the individual is what has made these societies the most successful. Um, whereas in places where the group tends to be more important in say, for example, in Communist Russia. I know that's a very extreme example, but it was all about class struggle, and to the point to which that was the only thing that mattered. And and well, it ended up collapsing. And like, like what would you say to the critique that that focusing on groups is is detrimental to to our idea that the individual is the most important thing? Or do you, do you even think that is a, a valid critique? No,
1: that's a valid critique. But I argue that then. Um... Intersectionality, or to blame intersectionality, is rather a very reductive view because intersectionality actually tries to deconstruct this group belonging.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: As I as I said earlier, if you look at from this kind of social identity perspective, that, which would come very close to what you were just saying about the individualization, okay, in terms mm-hmm. of individual freedom and. Um, liberty and uh, deciding about your individual life. So Mm -hmm. if you have the tool, let's say, to reflect in what ways, and that's not a contradiction really. If I have, for example, know that certain aspects of my identity or of my, what you say, group belonging is rather oppressed in a certain place, then it's going against this ideology of individualization because still a part of my identity a part of my group belonging is denied and rejected so mm-hmm. to unwrap this more complex understanding of different layers of group belonging is rather helping the cause to strengthen the perspective on individual individualization and individual identity But I wanted to comment on what you were just saying, this contrast with Russia. Um, I I guess there are different notions of this collective understanding because uh, also in terms of what does success mean to begin (laughs) with. Um, As we know it, China is one of the countries on the horizon to compete with the so-called West Japan, you know, for for ages was very successful. And These are countries, actually, who rather value collective orientations and less the individual. So even with this, let's say, argument, individualization against collectivation and then in terms of success or failure, it's not really true in terms of what kind of countries or what kind of cultures are you referring to. There Mm -hmm. might be... Countries that are more, let's say, um, ex- exposing exposing features of collectivism and then failed, but that might also be due to to other problems within the country or within the uh, ideology of participation or redistribution or recognition. Mm. So it's not that you know it's not that easy. And I don't know the book you're reading, uh, but mm. I would be cautious to say, okay, um, this is an example how the the Western, so-called Western individualization is much more progress or advanced against the communism. I think the story mm-hmm. is much more complex than really to compare this.
0: <laughs> no, no, I, t- I, take, I take your point. I mean, I'm not sure China's the best example, um, just due to their, their, you know, horrendously oppressive um, social uh, policies. but. And um, their sort of very horrendous genocide that they're currently um, dealing doing um in with the Uyghur Muslims, but uh, um, no, no I, do take...
1: I, I absolutely, I absolutely agree, and I'm not saying that it's uh, I'm, it it's depending whether you say uh, or try to discuss and what what does success mean? I mean, are we mm. talking economic success, success, sorry, or political success? Or are we talking um? progress in that sense in terms mm-hmm. of human rights and giving space to civil society. And I think that's the big issue. I mean, that's a big issue in different societies uh, where the problem is that there's no space really to critique or to have this kind of serious discussions and perhaps also conflicting views, which is fine. This part mm-hmm. of you know our understanding in some ways of free speech um, but then this would be the fine line, who is speaking in the public space, what kind of views are there, uh, is that space also reflect or critique them, and who is critique them, what's there, then, you know, that's where intersectionality wonderfully comes in. You know, mm-hmm. if in, let's say, in certain kind of media or mainstream media, you see 90% white people, middle-class people, I do not even know their religious belonging. uh, So then it's not representative to the society in itself. Mm. Okay. And if they would, and if we had, if we would use intersectionality, then that might be a very interesting view to check even beyond, even beyond whether it's a man or a woman talking to us at the micro on BBC, let's say, Mm. um, that would open up new avenues to discuss who is actually representing us as civil society or as society, society in media or in politics, mm-hmm. you know, you, mm-hmm. or in, 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 let's say, in the econo- economy. I mean, who is who is in charge, you know, who is in
0: charge? Hmm. I guess this is where, where the real, um, where my real sort of questions about it come in. Um, is my one of my one of my biggest um i wouldn't say problems but sort of misgivings about about the ideology and again you can correct me if i'm i've misinterpreted this um but that you sort of mentioned there that the, the, the who is representing us in terms of politics in society on the media or who is critiquing certain ideologies or groups that their 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 intersectional identity is is important to that um, and I kind of feel like that's to to do something. You said that is just, is kind of I don't know, maybe reductive or or uh, reducing people's autonomy of thought and sort of reducing them to to maybe not specifically one group, but to the the, the combination of groups that they belong to rather than their their thought. Like for for example, in politics. Um, yeah the person someone's personality is is far more indicative of who they're going to vote for than say their group identity um maybe perhaps hillary clinton for president was a was a was a slight um sort of outlier to that but just because of the way the entire campaign was run but but generally people's personality is what um defines how they vote or how they think and do you really think it's um sort of right to say that what the, what someone is perhaps saying is not valid, like a critique is not valid just because of the group that they, or groups that they belong to?
1: No, I wouldn't go that far, but I would be interested okay. to talk about the social background or where they come from. And I'm sure you've heard or read, <laughs> you studied at Queens, uh, mm-hmm. about culture capital by the by Bourdieu, you know, the French mm-hmm. sociologist. And if there are studies, for example, that middle-class students or middle-class people or middle-class journalists or politicians, whatever, um, are 90% coming from a certain kind of class category, then it's kind of confirming that, for example, young people or students coming from working class background or other minority backgrounds are disadvantaged you know, and if you wouldn't have this discussion, um, so why, for example, why there is a form of personality? And I, I agree with you that, though, I did not quite understand whether it's the attractiveness of personality that then brings people to vote for someone.
0: or whether No, I mean, I mean more that their personality will inform the, the their sort of general political beliefs, maybe not specifically who they will vote for, but their yes. actual grounded beliefs.
1: I, I always would uh, challenge this or say like it's it's definitely a mix of a personality. I mean that's the ind- individual um, face or performance of what we think we are. But behind who we think we are or this kind of uh, personality is also an embedding that is much more influential sometimes, and people. Do not always reflect on this. I agree on this, uh, but that's what I'm saying. You can't. I mean, another very famous um, sociologist, Anthony Giddens, years ago working at the LSE in London. He he worked like on agency and structure, and his project was in some ways also advancing the whole sociological debate. Saying, okay, it's not only about structure because what you're saying about uh, how you understand social categories or the group belonging that would be kind of people lock into this homogenous or static understanding of groups belonging, Mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. And agency, on the other hand, is exactly what we as individuals can make out of our belonging to different social categories. And the reality, or if you go, you go going back to your example of the politicians, of course, personality in some ways, then, is the face of agency.
0: So then, okay, so say that we're, we're accepting that the different, different groups or different people based on their intersectional identity have different... Viewpoints, and that we should hopefully strive to to have those viewpoints all heard. What would be uh, because I, I I agree in completely in principle that you want as as much diversity of thought as possible in in any in any place, be that a business, be that in politics, be that in a university. But what what would you be the the sort of Policy prescription for for encouraging that because I feel that the quotas or or um, just sort of numbers that you're required to hire just tend to become very messy, um, especially when ultimately we want want our. Or, 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 hierarchies in again in politics, in society, in um, in anything, in work to be based on on competence and and skill and and intelligence or compassion or whatever is you know required in, in that particular field. Like, what would be your prescription for helping to encourage that that diversity of thought?
1: Um, I mean, you know, when I was working in Germany, I was trained in law and I also worked with other lawyers, though I always was rather a sociologist, I have to say, on gender equality law and how to implement that. And some of what we were saying, the quota, of course, are based or originates to a certain degree in this understanding that there is a comp- the complete imbalance between the representation, let's say, of, of men and women in different spheres of life, whether it's mm-hmm. economical or political and so forth. And then the problem starts if you take intersectionality seriously, um, how to cope with this. I mean, on the one hand, there was big debate, for example, also uh, in, the, again, referring to the BBC, the, the, the gap, the income gap between women and men to begin with. But then, of course, you would, could also say, okay, how many visible ethnic minorities actually are working with the BBC, are, are visible in the bbc or channel 4 or any other and then the problem starts of course if you say we have a have a quota that different groups might claim belonging to the group so we want to have a quota hmm. so at some point this is probably not working so we have to agree on a strategy again not nothing new about this it's called mainstreaming you know, years ago, I think back 15, 20 years, um, Beijing Conference of Women brought up the idea that any institution should be gender mainstreamed. And then, of course, we could say it could be also mainstreamed in terms of more representation of visible minorities. The institution itself might have to change to allow this space that people from different backgrounds and so forth um can work in this environment and that might be also a better let's say better approach that institutions have to change and it's not only about the visible representation of a certain group it doesn't it doesn't help me let's say it doesn't help me um if i think of a Neoliberal capitalist state or society, and it's run by a female president who has awful racist views. For example, it <laughs> doesn't help. It doesn't help, and um, and even to you know to, <laughs> to add more political flavor to this, the recent election or Trump's um, election of this conservative female judge. You know, replacing player yeah, yeah. replacing the famous uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's not about the body, sorry. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's a problem. I mean, we have to very carefully and look closely uh, who is sitting there for which gain, and you know what, what's what's done with these let's say representations of groups. It doesn't mm-hmm. help if again. A rather very conservative um, black man suddenly is representing views which, let's say, have been uttered twenty years ago or ten years ago by white folk. I mean, mm. this is we are we are talking about uh, really a different a different vision of the world, perhaps, or different different visions of public space, of uh, organisations, of media, and so forth. And mm. that would, that would be my argument. it's in that, I mean, coming back to your question, definitely it's not only about quota.
0: Well, at, like one for example um, so, uh, an example that gets brought up quite often in this debate is um, for example, in terms of um, men versus women, if you look at the the most egalitarian societies in in the world, those that have made the, the greatest strides. To make opportunity um, and just social policy in the most equal way possible would be would be Scandinavia. Yeah. So I agree. Uh, yeah. The Scandinavian nations. Yeah. Um, and what what has really shocked um, a number of people was that they've discovered that the the this uh, What's the, I don't know how you would use it, but this like planing of the playing field in Scandinavia between men and women has essentially led to less diversity in, in workforces such as um, nursing and medicine or um, engineering. They're now looking at, at across across Scandinavia, for um, something equivalent to 20 to 1 women to male nurses and the, the complete opposite in, in fields of engineering. Um, do you think it's it's this kind of makes it even more difficult to try and try and figure out how you would make each industry or group or company as as equal as possible when there are, Obviously, like different career paths that would be more attractive to, in this case, men or women. But there's there's obviously other other ways you could you could bring yeah. that up. But that's yeah. that's just a very easy one to, to define.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, if I understood you correctly, then you're saying like it's still nurses. Let's say twenty
0: to one as proportion. Yeah, before. it's it's becoming okay. it's becoming so, so it's still... more it's becoming yeah. more. Um, divided by gender. As yeah, the, okay. The yeah, I mean that's interesting. I
1: don't, I don't know these figures and studies, but I would, in principle, also agree that Scandinavia, uh, if you, if you let's say the whole region, mm-hmm. um, did very well in the past because of its highly established welfare state system, mm. and that and the interesting thing you were just saying is but it doesn't mean that kind of traditional expectations of femininity or masculinity, um, change automatically, even in this, in a worded commas more formally equal countries Mm. because education and what people on the ground want to achieve might still differ along the gender or sexuality or sex lines. Mm. Um, so that, that's very interesting. Um, I mean, by now, I would say it's, it's difficult to think of Scandinavian countries. As you know, Denmark and Norway partly moved very to the far right. So that would mm. be another issue. If we are talking about men and women, are we also including migrant women and migrant men or mm. black men, black women? So the let's say, the settled and solid uh, narratives of the success of the Scandinavian countries have to be critiqued also in in certain ways because they they took for granted this kind of whiteness or took for granted uh, citizen rights, took for granted certain kind of structures and identities, and they might be also very much limited. And then coming back to what you were just saying, that might be also limited in terms of what young girls and young um, boys, you know, want want to see in their life and how they want to personality likewise. What you said earlier, uh, how they develop their their own career. That said, it I'm not quite sure, but it would be also very relevant to this discussion if we know what the salary would be in these different areas. Mm-hmm
0: because do you, think, do you think that's relevant though do you think that the, the, the salary is that is is important yeah, I think
1: it, would, it would give an even more uh interesting twist if you if we would let's say discover that the salary in these very different gendered fields is rather similar okay i mean i i don't know it but that would be very interesting because then uh, you would probably look at the choice of individuals also again in a different way whereas we can say engineering or traditionally more male gendered um, professions you find much more salary higher salary as for example in the social work or social care sector and that's part of the problem of course we are facing now (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. who's taking up this job particularly in the pandemic during pandemic times Um, but but again, I mean, to illustrate what I mean, uh, because you mentioned Russia and communist countries, um, in some of the communist countries, it was clear that doctors, for example, wouldn't earn that much money. So you had in the, the workforce, you had much more women in the workforce, uh, are a different proportion, really, um, because the salary wasn't that high and it wasn't that prestigious Mm. so prestige and salary quite often is combined and um that would be another interesting question then whether this is influencing this individual choice for example and whether people can foresee this, I don't know i mean when i when I reflect on my that like, decision to study social science, and at that time, people would say, "Okay, there's no big money in it, so I was aware um <laughs> yeah, but then it's not all about money, isn't it? so
0: no.
1: you decide uh you know on other grounds and other reasons what what you want to achieve in your life, so mm.
0: yeah. You actually mentioned that, that that Scandinavia has a very and, and part of the reason for their success has been their incredibly um I don't know, generous maybe isn't the word, but they're the really robust welfare state. Mm-hmm. Um do you think that means that people need not concern themselves with the with the salary that, that any one job might might provide, in that they don't have to concern themselves with healthcare costs, with educational costs, that these are all taken care of by the state and perhaps that helps um, people further express the, the their their individual choices that they f- they think okay well you know maybe I want to be a nurse but there's not a lot of pay in it oh that doesn't matter because we've got such a, a, a like you know a robust welfare state or in in uh, terms of say men and, and engineering they might go oh you know perhaps perhaps engineering might might give me a lot of money but. You know, I don't need to do it because of that, because again, the, the, the we've got a robust welfare state and I need not worry about about not making enough money to get by. Do you think that like helps people better express their, their, their what they what they will pursue I, I don't simply know, but, out of what they want?
1: I don't know, but the difference would be like if you go for the highly paid jobs, you have to pay much more taxes. Mm-hmm. And that's where the redistribution in some ways comes in because the higher welfare standards mean that, uh, let's say, taking care of, the, for, of children and kids and uh, the, the health system and unemployment system and so forth. So it's much more, it's encompassing a different form of living of society. Um, and, I mean, I've never lived in Scandinavian countries, so it's a <laughs> bit to tell? I didn't study them. Um, another discussion would be like, of course, it's very much about trust. Trust also into what the state does, mm-hmm. how the state how the state sustains society, and a very concrete and impressive um, example of this right now is the different the different pathway Sweden took in terms of how to cope with the COVID nineteen pandemic. You know, and I'm pretty sure that this wouldn't have worked in any other country. Why not? Because it takes for granted to a certain degree, A, the trust of citizens in the state and the trust that everybody is also supporting with reason and decision, um, to take care of each other and being part of this welfare system.
0: Okay, so you think that the the that their strength of welfare system has kind of shows their strength of belief in each other, essentially.
1: Yeah, as well, because that's when when you gave these examples of the different uh, fields of work and salaries. Mm. But in the end, the the higher welfare standard is of course funded. Through a different tax system, where where people or those who earn much more also have to pay more tax in in mm-hmm. in a way, and so it's a different form of circle, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, a circle of redistribution, wealth and health, and and yeah, and what I'm saying about Sweden, that's just my guess. That I think, uh, though. You would assume that Scandinavia or Sweden definitely is a country with a high level of understanding of individual freedom, mm-hmm. but at the same time it's um, an individual freedom that is embedded in a very, I think, clear understanding that they are part of society and take responsibility.
0: Mm. So you'd say they may be perhaps more... Which is,
1: nurt- which is nurtured by a different welfare state system. Mm-hmm.
0: So they're perhaps Whereas, more collectivist, maybe, than
1: you would, yeah, you in would in expect. Yeah, to a certain degree, yes, yes. And I, I mean, and to <laughs> come back, uh, my problem sometimes between, um, let's say, the division on the one side between individualism, good, and collectivism on the other side, bad, is somehow misleading because um, in the end, we are part of a collective, of a community. And a collective or a community is shaped by our individual decisions and how we look after each other and so forth and so forth. So it's not, it's not either or, it's rather how, how this is working together
0: to creating society. Is there um, any sort of work that you've put out recently that you'd like to promote before we before we finish? <laughs> well, you know, if people are interested in what we've been talking about, they yeah, might want to. I mean, I look mean up your work. Yeah,
1: as you said, uh, people who are interested in my work, of course, can um, Google me. You know, hmm. um, my, my most recent work is um, less actually on intersectionality though, I worked on intersectionality. I did a study on the situation of asylum seekers and refugees with my colleague, Dr. Fiona Murphy back in 2017. So we used intersectionality as a lens to understand the different needs of asylum seekers and refugees in Northern Ireland. So that's the one and only study that looked after the um, experience and living conditions of asylum seekers and refugees here in Northern Ireland. Um, I'm I'm rather publishing more recently on far right populism. To be honest, um, probably at the next stage I would look also into what intersectionality means in this respect. Uh, mm-hmm. But for now, it's rather my concern that we are shifting and have to face up in different societies a, a shift to authoritarianism and far right populism. So that's my current or more
0: important concern well um I can't I can't argue that we we've definitely got a few despots um in in the, the in the near vicinity that we maybe didn't have five ten years ago so <laughs> yes. it's a little yes. scary but yeah. um, anyway I, thank you very much um, yep, for, thank you for, for chatting. it was a it was a pleasure Yeah, yep,
1: thank you it was a pleasure
0: as well Thanks so much for listening if you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the links in the description below. Until next time, thanks for listening.